Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Perhaps the biggest known unknown in Putin's invasion of Ukraine is China's role and the implications for China. During the Beijing Olympics, the Chinese and Russian leaders issued a communique saying their country's relationship has, quote, no limits, unquote. But what does it actually mean? Did China's leadership acquiesce or actively endorse the invasion? Is China providing economic, financial, maybe intelligence, who knows, support? How far will China go to keep Russian troops in the field? Communique aside, are there in fact limits? Tough questions that are very difficult, maybe impossible to answer. But our guest on this episode of New Thinking for a New World recently offered some answers. In a paper she published, Can China Bail Out Putin? Alicia Garcia Herrero is a senior fellow at the European think tank Bruegel, as well as the chief economist for, for Asia Pacific at Natixis, a French investment bank. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much, Alan. It's such a pleasure to be here and discuss this important topic with you and, and, and exchange views, indeed. Let's get started. Context matters. So I'd like to start with a twist on the question you answered. So I'll give you a different one. Does China want to bail out Putin? And if so, why? Great question. Actually, in in several uh, different versions of that blog you mentioned, because I've been working on this for a while, I actually structured it exactly that way. Because the first question to answer is really whether China wants to bail out Putin. There is another question, does Putin need a bailout? <laughs> as we speak. And the other one is, if, if, if the both are yes and yes, can China do it? So I'm going to start with the very first one, uh, namely, does China want to help, maybe, let's say, help Putin economically? You, you did mention uh, other aspects, of, uh, such as uh, military or even, you know, intelligence-wise. I'm going to um, put that aside because I'm not an expert. But, but uh, looking at... Uh, economic help, my answer is yes, indeed. China wants to help. Um, of course, any desire to help has limits, no matter the communique. And this is true for China. This is true for anybody anywhere in the world. It all depends on, you know, as economists, that's the way we think. We want to maximize the help, but there are some constraints. And those constraints, indeed, are the cost the unintended or unintended costs for the West, perhaps intended costs of, you know, to, to basically um, constrain China's help. So in a way, by thinking this way, we already know that China wants to help. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to constrain uh, China's uh, room to help. But but of course, we, we, we first would have to answer why does China want to help? And I think there's, uh, to me, uh, 
I would say four reasons. I, I want to start with the most important, which is a change in the global order. And I've heard some of your podcasts, so I know you've been talking about this. So I don't need to convince the audience if they're listening to your podcast that that there is a very clear uh, attempt, uh, desire, if not vision, because this is beyond, you know, this is a, a secular thing. It's a very important thing for China. China is unhappy with the global order for, for a number of reasons. And China does want to change the global order. China would like to change this global order discreetly, and it's tried um, for, for decades by now. China can't break the, the glass, you know, that we've created in the West in terms of our institutions. They just feel that that change is very slow. They've tried creating their own institutions. The, Uh, the Asian uh, uh, Investment Infrastructure uh, Investment and Infrastructure Bank is an example, but there's many. You could argue that the Belt and Road Initiative is also a different way to do that because it's a hub and spoke approach to change the world. So China at the center and and many different links. Um, but, But it hasn't really reached the point of saying, we've changed the global order. So I think that's, uh, to do that, China needs, I, I guess they've realized that the hub-and-spoke approach, BRI, is not enough because nobody's pushing that change. It's all about bilateral relations. So so Russia comes at the forefront of the wish, the desire to change that global order. And I think there's no better partner uh, for China to do that. We follow that for No better partner because Russia, and it is one of Putin's habits, he's quite happy to break things. He's a weapon. He's a tool, perhaps. Yes, indeed. Well, we call it in China's jargon, the barking dog. So basically you need, I mean, if your attitude to things is more like um, contemplative, let me say, uh, in the Chinese mindset, I think you need a breaking tool. I mean, you need something that is more... So, so absolutely right. But beyond that, there's also the idea of uh, the rest of the world, the global south, as, as uh, we like to call it, uh, and China certainly uses it very frequently lately, the global south, um, part of the global south doesn't want to change the global order because they feel that with the current global order, either globalization and the existing institutions, they may be more protected. This is especially true for smaller countries, which certainly don't like to see borders being moved around. And and, and therefore, I think, um, you know, uh, not everybody can help change the global order. You need uh, countries that are seeking revenge. And Russia is certainly the best, in my opinion, the best partner Uh, in that uh, in that quest that China has expressed very clearly with its China dream, uh, break you know stopping the um, kind of revo- revoking the center of humiliation, and it's very similar to Putin's dream, and I think that's where they collude. Uh, but that's only, and to me, is the most important reason. Um, uh, that reason is actually uh, brings along uh, the counterfactual. Let me explain what I mean by the counterfactual. The counterfactual is that imagine a world where Russia were a democracy, where you wouldn't actually have somebody out there shouting, I want to change the global order. I mean, for China, that would look very lonely. 
And it would totally change the dynamic, possibly, possibly. Of course, I'm not convinced, but I do think it could possibly change the dynamic of the global south. Because nobody would bark. And if nobody barks, you need to make yourself, I mean, expose yourself much more. So for China, uh, having a democratic Russia, and let's let's not talk about the border, I mean, even geographically speaking, yeah, um, I think that's something that China would not like to see, to be very frank. So that's kind of the, you know, the add-on to the changing of the global order. You would not like the global order to change in the opposite direction. <laughs> it's, it's not even the status quo you may not like. It's the potential change in the direction you would not like to see. So this is all geopolitics, but let me talk about three economic reasons uh, for China to want to support Putin, which was a question you asked me. And I'll be brief because they're all very obvious. Maybe not the third, but, but certainly the first two. One is energy security. So one could argue that uh, China has it all to not to bother about energy security. Um, uh, if you think about green transition, you know, they have uh, 80% of uh, the global production of solar panels. And, and you know, and if you think about uh, no transition, why not? You you can think of, of many, you know, like operations, whether it's Angola, whether it's, you know, Venezuela. You, you could argue that even much better relations with Saudi recently. Iran, I mean, the, the the port of Wadar trying to kind of escape the the Strait of Hormuz. I mean, ways to uh, to secure, um, I mean, to, to improve ener- energy security. But all of them, all of them have some risk of, of a turn, yeah, of a turn. There are issues uh, with uh, China-Pakistan um, uh, uh, economic cooperation. There are issues with Venezuela. We know that Chevron now, I mean, this is perhaps a consequence of Ukraine is operating. I mean, we, China is not fully convinced that it can deal with its energy needs. And I think uh, Russia by far is the most obvious option to do that, especially if Russia ends up being uh, weaker in terms of its relations with the West and really needs to turn, as, as Putin already announced it in 2012, uh, that uh, pivot to the East, I think now is a forced pivot to the East, which is very different. Uh, and it's not the whole East because Japan is actually uh, thinking of reducing its exposure to Russian gas, but actually to a very specific East, no matter how big, which is China. Uh, the second reason is military cooperation. I'm not a military expert. I'm not going to dwell into this one, but I think it seems obvious to me that China has developed basically short-range missiles, Taiwan, and, you know, uh, you, uh, the, Russia is a very different ballgame. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, cooperation that that has been happening that I think can only increase over time. The third is the Arctic. So as a self, uh, self, um, imposed or self, um, nominated member of the Arctic, I, China, um, you want to have somebody which is actually real part of, of, you know, of that endeavor, uh, Russia, that is a full member and, and help you alone. And, and, you know, we have this big project Arctic too, uh, where China has been trying very hard to be part of. Um, I think their investment so far is about 10%, but the point is they want to be 
in there. They won't, I mean, and the idea of having, of course, a new commercial route and forget about all of these trades dominated by the U.S. is certainly of major importance for China. So, so there's so many reasons. I, I actually sometimes think that I don't understand why the West thinks there are no reasons. Sometimes I hear we're so much bigger in terms of trade, and that misses the point of many other reasons that are not as immediate as the actual share of trade that are also very important for China to bail out Putin. Oh, I'd make the case that a lot of both government officials and pundits are driving by looking at their rearview mirror. And they're not thinking about the kinds of changes and transitions that are underway. Um, and that's why, does it really matter what the size of GDP of, of the OECD is versus, no, no it's, it's, it's absolutely silly. But let me go back to energy for a second, because one of the questions on energy uh, sort of drilling down, sorry, just a little bit, uh, is that you've got to connect the pipes, which is to say that uh, Russia had made the strategic mistake of connecting to Europe not connecting to China as their strategy shifted. As you know, they've only started to build out that pipeline network. Uh, how fast, if China and Russia want it, can they put that infrastructure in place, do you think? Well, I mean, again, not being a, a massive expert on the topic, but I've been looking into this because it's essential. I mean, it, so the situation is, as you rightly pointed out, is that when we look at especially gas, I mean, the West dominates uh, uh, about three times um what China imports. And not only that, apparently China pays a fourth of the price per cubic meter. And the reason is that China got a deal at the worst of all times for Russia that was right after uh, Crimea to build power of Siberia 1, which is the, the indeed the gas uh, pipeline that, uh, that you are referring to. And um, because China, uh, China Development Bank, in, especially lent most of the money to about 60 billion. Uh, uh, nobody knows exactly, but these are the estimates. There was this agreement, a 400 billion um, contract to provide gas in a very long period of time at a price that was never unveiled. But what we know now by looking at the numbers of revenue and, and so on is that uh, China, Spain, so much less than Europe. So this is important because it's not only about substituting, but the amount, the revenue that you manage to obtain from that substitution. And I think by far Russia would be obtaining less. This is true already for oil, as we all know. Yeah, I mean, they're selling at a huge discount. No, let's put a number on that because I've heard about transactions in the $70 range, oil transactions. Is that a credible number, do you think? Yes. Two things here. Um, this is not only China, this is India and uh, apparently even Indonesia now is, is uh, thinking of increasing uh, oil imports because the price is so appealing. And uh, India has announced that it's ready to pay in rupee, actually, uh, through a swap line, uh, basically a clone clone of the PBOC subline with uh, with the Central Bank of the Russian Federation. So, you know, nobody's going to pay in ruble, but certainly they're not going to pay in dollar, which is probably what Russia needs. So, you know, there, there is a lot of discounts happening. And the pivot to this, which was my point, is also a discount for Russia. Russia is not going to obtain the same revenue out of those uh, new pipelines. But, but um, 
going back to the pipelines, what one so in the famous um, endless uh, cooperation agreement on the fourth of uh, February in Beijing, uh, two pipelines were announced. Uh, one quite small, which is basically a, you know a similar uh, power of Siberia one, but just just a, a smaller pipeline. By the way, p- power of Siberia one is not even fully utilized yet. I want to to highlight that uh, China is very cautious of because um, you know China has other uh, commitments. China wants to bring along the Middle East. Let's not forget that China doesn't want to tell the Middle East I'm only dealing with Russia, especially not the Saudis now, which are you know uh, playing around. Should should we change our strategic uh, mindset? towards China. That's not the right time to say, I'm only importing gas from Russia, you know? So so China is in a bind, we always say this, but, but for many other reasons than Ukraine only. China is in a bind because it needs to show its waning strength. And I want to f- highlight that world. Waning strength for a number of reasons, structural, cyclical, COVID. Yeah. I mean, Demand is plummeting. You cannot just say I'm going to help only Russia. That would be a killer. So, so that pipeline is not even fully utilized yet. I've checked the numbers uh, for February and uh, the course of March. China's imports of coal, gas, and oil from Russia. No increase in volume. Not a bit. It's just all price. I mean, an increase in price, which explains the additional revenue. But again, that price is lower than what Europe is paying. So now, finally, to your question, because I, I, I've talked too long uh, and I've not responded to your question, which is terrible, but it, it's that, indeed, the second agreement uh, in this endless cooperation was a pipeline through Siberia to link the West pipelines with Power of Siberia 1. And indeed, the name is Power of Siberia 2 because the idea is to create that link. How long? Based on, and this is, again, I'm not an engineer. My answer is possibly inaccurate. I've not seen any answers, so I'm going to dare say something. The only thing I know is that Power Siberia 1 started um, early 2015, and it was was ended fully operation in 2019. So that's a four-year framework. I don't know how long this might last, but I don't think this can be done faster than Power of Siberia, because also the length, and it's actually pretty... So, long story short, I think this is not an immediate... It's, a, it's not a respite. A gas is not a respite uh, for Putin, no matter um, how much China may want to increase the volume. First, mm, I don't think it will, for the reasons I mentioned. Second, the revenue is small. Third, there's no pipeline to fully divert the gas yet. A world under stress needs leaders in every discipline and in every country. Leaders whose work is innovative, courageous, rooted in universal values and global in approach or implication. If you know someone like that in your company, in your university, in your community, anywhere, please nominate that person for the Talberg SNF Aliasin Global Leadership Prize. Go to talbergprize.org. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G prize.org. So you have brilliantly answered the question whether or not President Xi wants to bail out 
or help or support or whatever, whatever however we want to characterize it, uh, President Putin and the Russians, uh, can he? And what are the constraints? More important, yes, he can to some extent by definition, paragraph. What are the constraints on how much help, how much support? You've already mentioned one. Um, China has a very complicated world, in some ways moving against them, in foreign policy moving in their direction in, in many ways. So it's, it's a complex world. Uh, that complexity imposes constraints, by definition. What else? What, what else are the constraints that, that prevent or encourage support? Uh, China is a country where uncertainty is a word you don't want to use. I mean, it's not, uh, you know, it's, you, it's just by definition, it's culturally uncertainty is a problem. It's not an opportunity. They always say risk is, is, is an opportunity, but I actually feel that, um, I mean, provoked, I mean, if you have a, a shock that you couldn't avoid, you may do the best out of it. And I think that's very Chinese. But that's different from seeking uncertainty. <laughs> they don't like uncertainty. Chinese don't like uncertainty, rightly so. Their history uh, proves them right. I mean, it's been very, very uh, volatile and, and very costly in lives and, and etc. So um, uh, China doesn't like sanctions. And when they are, when they come to you, to the European counterparts, uh, which is going to happen today, by the way, we don't want your sanctions. Please, you know, um, stop your sanctions uh, immediately if you want us to, to, Act as a um, as 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 a pre well. I, I I like to use primus inter pares because that's what they really want to do. But you know, as a mediator in a nicer word, um, stop the sanctions. So so China will not go against the sanctions. For me, it's very very clear by looking at what Chinese banks are doing: Sinopec, Xiaomi, you name it. They're all on paper and factually complying with the sanctions. No letters of credit, no dollar financing. Uh, sometimes even going beyond the sanctions um, because of the risk of of being caught. Uh, but there are, of course, many ways to support Russia beyond. Uh, I mean, other than getting in the hole of the sanctions. And I think all of that will be done. Some of that support is rhetoric, not. Um, not pecuniary, if I may say so. But but this brings me to the uh, question. So for me, there, there are two questions. Can China help? Uh, does China want to help China, uh, Russia? Yes, no doubt. Does Russia need China's help? And that's, you know, to me, Russia is not yet, interestingly, as desperate as to accept any type of help from China. And that's important because the ways, because the... Ways in which China can help without being hurt are, some of them are costly for Russia, so they may not want them. Others are not costly for Russia, so they they will want that help. So let me start with the costly ones that China can offer, but Russia may not want to accept. And that's indeed the China's digital currency. So China is very keen to support uh, anybody interested, not only Russia, in a way that they adopt their digital currencies. So we've seen a memorandum of, of understanding uh, for Hong Kong, I guess, 
not that Hong Kong needs it, but no choice. And why not? You know, they have renminbi settlements, etc. The UAE, interestingly, and Thailand. Thailand, this is tourists. Yeah, I mean, it's a way to promote, um, uh, to to to. to basically entice Chinese tourists to pay same payment, Alipay, but actually underlying currency, renminbi, not the legal tender in, in the Thai bat. So that's, that's now, does Russia want that now? Of course not. But you don't want a second currency to circulate, uh, which, would add, which would be the kind of the safe haven of the demand for hard currency, given that there's no other hard currency around, that weakens the Ruble. There's no point for Russia to want that now, and I think that's that's uh, important to realize. This is different from bypassing the sanctions. I want to clarify. We can talk about that. But now is the key word in that sentence because we're only a month into this war. Um, we do live in a world where things happen much faster than they used to. Um, but every great war is going to be over by Christmas. Remember, World War One, World War Two, you name it. Um, this one would not surprise me if it drags on for many months um, and then maybe some kind of freeze frozen status where nothing gets gets softened. So sooner or later, the financial pressure, and let's separate that from some other things, the financial pressure on Russia will grow. In parentheses, they're currently earning something on the order of a billion dollars a day. Um, one of the great mysteries of the world, at least of my world, is where's that money going? Uh, everything's sanctioned. You're certainly not putting it in the New York Fed. Um, so you've got a billion dollars a day. It's a month old, $30 billion. That's not chump change. Um, it's quite valuable for a country under the kind of pressure that Russia is. Uh, so there is this question, and that does affect the now, your point, that they don't made, maybe don't need it. As you get squeezed out of markets, you're a month, two, three, four, five, you may need it. So one of the things you're suggesting we watch for is how, when, if Russia and China agree that Russia would indeed start to use the digital yuan, um, that will be a sign of weakness on Russia's part and strength on China's part, and obviously a measure of uh, more interlinkages that will be hard to undo over, over the years. So, so that, that, that is one thing. Yeah. Let, let me, sorry, uh, go back to, because it's a very important question. Where is the money going? Where is this money going? Partially, of course, to pay for the war. I mean, the, the war is costly. There's estimates of a billion a day. I don't know whether... But this is hard currency costs. The billion, the revenue is hard currency. The expenses yeah. are soft currency. Yes, of course. Those are two different things, no? Yes. Well... I mean, I'm sure that they're stepping up purchases of semiconductors, mainly China. There's, there, there isn't anything left. Is China accepting uh, payment in ruble? I doubt. I mean, I think some of that dollar is going somewhere because you can still pay. There's no commercial sanctions. Uh, if you've not signed up to the ban on semiconductor, uh, exports of semiconductor, and China hasn't, you can still conduct commercial transactions. Maybe they don't. You don't want to sell cell phones because if you are Xiaomi and you have a you know a brand in Europe, you don't want to be caught in the midst of the 
of the brand issues, which is why many other European companies uh, and others, by the way, have left uh, Russia. But uh, for companies that are don't have a brand in the West, I think commercial uh, operations are continuing because you can use SWIFT with those banks that are outside of um, the ban uh, uh, to use SWIFT. And these are some are very big banks. Uh, by the way, I think that's where the money is going, to your question. Where is the rest of the money going? The, this money, and I guess there is an MOU or, you know, this is just, I, I don't have any proof of what I'm saying, but if I were them, I would put the money uh, with a kind of a, an agreement that this money is, uh, you know, property of the Ministry of Finance, of the Central Bank in the banks that are not yet uh, constrained by um, swift uh, sanctions. And these banks can hold dollars because as, as long as we don't have full commercial sanctions, there's a lot of room. I mean, this is something we, we I think we need to realize. No, I think I just want to underline the semiconductor point. Uh, one of the things that happens during the war is that you blow things up. You, you, you lose munitions, you use missiles, you use tanks, you use etc. All of that requires semiconductors. Uh, Russia seems to be semi, self-dependent on military grade semiconductors, I understand but imports 90% of its commercial uh, semiconductors, mostly Huawei, from China. And, and the point you just made is terrifically important. Those aren't, nobody's violating any sanctions. Um, and you must be right that, that, that those flows are terrifically important in a world where you can't build a car, never mind a tank, without uh, semiconductors. A couple of things there. Uh, it's a very good point. Um, here, the key is to understand whether, and I think uh, we might be, we might start to see some issues here because, you know, now I'm sitting in Taipei as we speak, TSMC hasn't been doing great lately. And I think one of the issues is that the ban, I mean, we thought that uh, TSMC's biggest problem would be the entity list, you know, the US entity list and and uh, whether it would uh, be able to serve SMIC or Huawei. But the reality is that with Russia, although Russia is a very small market for TSMC, there is a big risk because the question is, does it apply to, I mean, what if TSMC uh, sells to SMIC and then SMIC send, uh, sells to Russia? Will TSMC be told you cannot sell to SMIC? So, you know, the, the complexity of the bans on semiconductors to me has only started for the reason you mentioned, because it's key for the military um, capabilities uh, of Russia. And the, the self, uh, I mean, whether they've reached autarky, if I may say, or, or self-reliance uh, for military operations, I, I'm nobody to judge. But my sense is that it's very hard to distinguish, yeah, is that, first of all, because uh, if Russia were able to, I mean, I guess some of, the, of that military operations might need more sophisticated semiconductors that only very few, if not only basically TSMC can produce. So, you know, there's a, a few things that could be a choke on the, and I wonder how important that is. But my sense that the, from what I hear, and, and actually Bruegel has a blog on this, which I didn't write, but it's a very interesting one. Um, to me, it's, it seems as if these bottleneck semiconductors might be more important than many others. We might be discussing whether it's SWIFT or even the ban on the central bank because it goes up to the heart of the military capabilities of Russia. And I think that's that's very, very important. 
Uh, let's switch gears just slightly. I have heard, you, you've already mentioned that uh, a number of Chinese institutions both complying with sanctions and going beyond sanctions are reducing their activities with Russia. On the other hand, I've also heard of, of Chinese investors, particularly in the energy sector and in other sectors, trying to pick up assets that uh, Westerners have abandoned. Um, is, is that accurate, do you think? Yeah, I've, uh, I think the announcement was made. There's two, I think, going back to your general question of what China can do that that is possible. And I, I, I only said some of the things China can do which are possible are not interesting. But this one is interesting. It's interesting um, for Russia only if there is no other way out. Let me clarify. What I mean is that for now, what has happened is that Russia in a way is nationalizing uh, for free. Yeah, it's basically you don't want to operate I'm not giving you any hard currency. You can leave, take the door. It's not bad because in a way uh, it's like a, a Western company paid for something that that company can neither use nor take out. I mean, not not swap into into a currency that or any currency for that matter. So 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 in a way, this is already a gain for 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 the Kremlin in terms of assets. Yeah, and it recoups assets. Can it resell those assets to somebody else? Well, I guess, uh, uh, and, and I, I've seen that Russia is trying to avoid, and this is actually happening in many European countries during COVID, that they forbid, um, forbid, uh, they forbid the sales, the uh, I mean, purchases of companies at a very low price because of the massive collapse in March 2020. So Russia is doing the same. So in other words, I don't think Russia wants to sell yet because Russia doesn't want to sell at a huge discount. So as long as Russia has the ability uh, to hold that, I think it will. Maybe again in the future to sell to strategic investors in China, but not at the worst of all times. Um, and on top of that, Sinopec has announced that it will delay uh, any um, new project in Russia. I think the idea being, I don't want to be seen in the midst at, at the, you know, when when all of the eyes are on me regarding sanctions. Um, but in the medium term, I do think that um, uh, uh, Chinese uh, oil companies or energy companies, more generally, will will step in and and have a larger stake in Russia. Absolutely. We're nearing the end of our time, so let me ask you a question that probably is unfair. Um, there are people in Beijing, in, as well as elsewhere, arguing that odds are that this is a win-win for China, that there's almost no set of circumstances that are within the bounds of possibility uh, that won't leave them better off than before this Things started in February. Do you really believe that China is the winner, potentially in in, in this situation, in this tragic situation? No, I don't think China is the winner. Uh, thanks for the question. Um, China is not the winner because China can no longer sit on the fences. Because if, put it this way, Kissinger is dead. <laughs> I mean, China is 
And is for anybody, I mean, why are we talking about China to start? I mean, why aren't we talking about Russia? First, you wouldn't invite me because that's not my expertise. But uh, so I'm quite happy that uh, China is the elephant in the room for this one. But the point is, anybody in the world by now has understood this simple concept, which wasn't the case. If I had to push this argument with Literally anybody in Europe, uh, only a few months ago, they would tell me, Alicia, you're obsessed. You've been there too long. Just come back and talk about something different. <laughs> Literally. Now, I feel like everybody wants to know. So that's what has changed. Is this good for China? Mm, certainly not. Because the whole idea, this is the, the Xiaoping's, yeah, it's like um, Hang Lo, do not confront yourself with the U.S., certainly not militarily. I mean, just do what you need to do. Grow, grow, grow. Become bigger, but uh, don't show it. And um, I think China, for a while, this is not only Ukraine, but in a way, Ukraine has literally, like, opened this uh, Pandora box to, you know, anybody on Earth to realize that uh, there is a huge economy with increasing soft power, because uh, I have to add, and I know this is the last question, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to say that the, uh, the ways in which China can help Russia are mostly rhetorical, but that's so powerful. Think about, you know, re-inviting or at least, you know, uh, accommodating Putin to the G20. I mean, the pressure on Indonesia. Think about the position of South Africa. Think about India, you know, receiving visits the how come you're here now? I mean, I've not seen you for two years. And, you know, we all know why. So so all of that, which is subtle, and but because the Pandora box has exploded, literally, China can't hide its um, subtle moves anymore. It's, it's, it's literally uh, why I think China can't be a winner because anything China does now, receives enormous attention, and not for the better, unfortunately, for China, but for the worse. I realize that this is a chess game and that that can change and China can turn the public opinion because of the Western sanctions and, you know, this global south and all of that. But it is going to be so much harder because everybody is aware of that kind of um, ambiguous position, but never neutral. That, that's what China has achieved. The understanding by the rest of the world that China is not really neutral. And I think that's a big change in, 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 in the global order. I can think of about a dozen questions to follow up, but that we'd be here forever. So instead of asking yet more questions, let me thank you for that um, and ask you to promise we can do this again in a few months once we see how reality catches up with our imagination. Absolutely. It'll be my great pleasure. Thank you, Alan. Thank you very much, Alicia. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation. <laughs>